Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. This talk, What's the Deal with COVID-19 Vaccines, was generously shared with us by Dr. Dan Grove, who was Assistant Director of Critical Care at MedStar Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore, talking with Dr. Naor Barzaev, who is Deputy Director of the International Vaccine Access Center and Associate Professor of International Health and Vaccinology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Dan Grove has a blog, My COVID Journey, and he also has these talks, this talk and other talks up on his own YouTube page, Dan Grove, D-A-N-G-R-O-V-E. Thank you so much, Dr. Grove and Dr. Barzev for sharing this interview with us. Okay, here we are today. We're lucky to have both in this chat on our Zoom call here and in the Baltimore community, Dr. Naor Barzev, um, who is a associate professor of uh, infectious diseases and in the Division of Global Disease Epidemiology and Control at Johns Hopkins University, specializes primarily in vaccine development um, and immunization, both in, mostly in children. Uh, he's also an expert in epidemiology, tropical medicine, uh, and other very important diseases, although none of those are interesting to people at this time because everybody only cares about COVID. So Dr. Barzev, thank you for this. We're going to try to get this out to the Baltimore community. We're really lucky to have you. Thank sure, you. Really glad to be here. Okay. So the first question, so I, you know, I figure since, since you're an expert on vaccination, and I think that you know, there's been a lot of bad news coming up, but everybody wants to, is, is waiting for the party, the vaccine party. Now, obviously, the party is going to be once we're all immune, but the vaccine is this big ray of hope for all of us. But the first question is, before we get to what a vaccine does, how, what makes someone immune to a virus? Like, how do you become immune to a virus, especially the coronaviruses? Well, the immune system learns by exposure. That's the wisdom of the immune system. And by encountering a pathogen for the first time, uh, then the immune system learns to encounter, learns to recognize it, usually through its surface proteins. Um, by doing that, the, the cells of the immune system develop, the receptors are selected, and then they're released into the, into the bloodstream and are free-floating and known as antibodies. And generally, with most viruses, uh, first exposure to a virus will lead to a robust immune response. Some viruses will lead to a lifelong immune response, or close to lifelong. Measles is a good example of that. But even with measles, we know that, as, certainly with measles vaccination, we now know that really you need two doses to generate a strong, robust, and long-lasting immune response. Um, and a cohort of people my age, born in the 70s, often only got one, one vaccine. Uh, and we saw in a, a year ago when there was a measles outbreak, Lalene, where a worker on El Al, a woman who was exposed uh, on a flight, uh, lost her life, Lalene, you know, sadly, to, to measles. Having had only uh, having been vaccinated, but she had a single dose, 
So we know that through vaccination and sometimes also through natural infection, you actually need to be exposed more than once to develop a robust immune response. Um, I sometimes use as an analogy, you know, if, if you learn times tables, you've got to learn them again and again and again before you really know them. Um, as a kid, and the same thing as an adult, you know, you, you can't compare somebody who did Khazar 100 times and somebody who did it 101 times. And it's the same thing for the immune system. The more we get exposed to pathogens, the more the immune system learns and becomes robust and develops a more uh, avid, uh, a more uh, efficient and a, and a stronger immune response. In that regard, people who advocate for ongoing exposure to the outside world are correct. Like, we don't want to live in a sterile bubble. We want to be exposed to two organisms in the world which are part of the natural environment. The problem arises when there's a highly pathogenic one that causes disease, uh, particularly one that causes severe disease in people who are more vulnerable. Um, in that situation, we really don't want to be exposing ourselves to that, or we want to at least be limiting transmission in the community so that vulnerable people don't get injured. So, you know, that's the purpose of vaccination. Sometimes vaccination, very often vaccination requires more than a single dose. And sometimes natural exposure to wild-type infection also requires more than a single dose until immunity develops. So the vaccines then, what are the vaccines? Are the vac I mean, for people, there's some people out there that don't understand how vaccines work at all. Are the vaccines, are you giving people the virus or are you giving people pieces of the virus, and, and how does that work? Well, most of the vaccines that are, I mean, for COVID, most of the COVID vaccines that are in development now don't use uh, the virus uh, directly. Um, they don't use it at all. There's one, one vaccine that's in, um, entering phase three trials, where they're trialing it in humans, which uses uh, a killed vaccine. So they take the, the SARS-2 coronavirus, and they, uh, they kill it using a chemical method, and then they inject it, and it, and it leads to a, a generalized immune response. Um, but the, because it's a killed vaccine, it doesn't cause disease. Um, in 1955, there was a polio vaccine like that that wasn't properly killed, called the Cutter incident, and it led to cases of polio. But ever since that time, the mechanisms for killing of organisms for killed vaccines um, has been improved, and we haven't had an incident like that, as far as I'm aware, since 1955. So that's a very safe method. But all of the other vaccines, and there are many others that are in development, don't use the coronavirus at all. Um, they use either um, produced, artificially produced proteins that mimic the, um, the um, binding domain on the, on the spike protein on the surface of the coronavirus, or they use uh, artificially constructed RNA molecules that when, uh, when they enter the human body uh, are expressed uh, to form the protein in the human body that is a mimic of the SARS coronavirus protein. The immune system recognizes that, and the immune system mounts an immune response. So we're not actually exposing anybody to live coronavirus uh, uh, in order to uh, generate an immune response. Other older vaccines do sometimes use live attenuated uh, 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 organisms, and one of, the, one of the types of seasonal flu vaccine, for example, is like that, where we weaken the pathogen and expose the body to a live version of it. But for coronavirus, that's not the case. None of them are using that technology that way. So essentially, you're giving the body a piece of the virus or something similar to trick it into thinking it's infected, but not really infecting, yeah. and then it develops all the mechanisms to prevent. So then what happens then for somebody, let's say somebody who's had an, a viral infection or got a vaccine, and then maybe a year later, they get exposed to that again. What then happens? Well, in the normal course of events, uh, after immunization, the body 
um, has enough of these circulating antibodies uh, ongoing in the body, even if they wane over time, there's an arm of the immune system called T-cells that are long-lived so-called memory T-cells. Some of them we keep in our bone marrow, some of them we keep in our spleen, which is there on the left side under the ribs. And when the body encounters the pathogen again, it's already got an early recognition system. It immediately upregulates, up ramps up the production um, of of uh, of these antibodies, expresses them very rapidly, and uh, and eradicates hopefully uh, the invading invading pathogen before it has the chance to cause substantial disease. That's the aim of a vaccine. Now it's important to say that some vaccines can prevent infection altogether. So you know you encounter the pathogen and it just doesn't get in gets into your body but gets immediately eradicated. Some vaccines don't do that. They let you get infected, but they prevent you from getting severe disease from that infection. And that has some relevance in terms of public policy because what it means is that if I can give a vaccine now um, for COVID that reduces disease, but if it allows ongoing transmission and infection, then the way we deploy it and the way we use it might have very different, different ramifications. We might need to use it to protect the vulnerable rather than to use it to protect or to prevent transmission in the community. So really the way in which these new vaccines will work and what they'll be able to achieve, what we'll learn out of the clinical trials, what we will need to learn after the clinical trials will really help us to know how to best deploy them in order to achieve the maximum good out of these vaccines. So if somebody who has uh, an infection or a vaccine, then they develop antibodies and those antibodies protect them from a future infection, so doesn't that mean that we should just be able to check people's antibodies levels for SARS-CoV-2? And then if they have antibodies, they should be protected. That's something that a lot of people think. And why is that true or why is that not true? So there's a few things to say about that. The first thing is that at the moment, we don't know what level of antibodies uh, are protective against infection. Uh, just because somebody has antibodies, it doesn't mean that those are, are the antibodies that will protect them. For example, if I'm exposed to the spike protein on a coronavirus and I develop antibodies against that spike protein, I might at the same time develop antibodies against other parts of the, um, of the, of the virus as well. Uh, to, give you, uh, to give you an example, um, if I you know, come at you with a, with a fist in the air about to punch you in the face, not that I would go to be, right? And then you recognize my shoes, right? So, okay, good. It's good that you know my, what my shoes are like, but that's not going to stop the punch, okay? So it's the same thing when it comes to um, when the virus, if, if you look, see what I mean. The spike protein is the one that attaches to the cell, the one that does the damage. But the, if the immune system learns to recognize some other part of the virus, that's good. It means that it's been there before, it's seen it, but it's not going to help in terms of prevention of future infection. So it's really a question of whether there's sufficient neutralizing antibodies, the antibodies that actually prevent future disease, and that's just not well enough established in the widespread antibody testing. So antibody testing at the moment tells people whether they've been exposed in the past to the virus. It tells them whether they've probably been exposed in the last three or four months. It doesn't tell them that they're necessarily protected. Number one. Number two, even if you have the right kind of antibody, we don't know what level you need in order to be protected. And number three, as far as we know, at least at the moment, is that levels of antibodies seem to go down over time, probably about three or four months, maybe six months. It may depend on how severely infected you were. It may depend on a number of other factors. It may depend on your age. But it's difficult just because you have antibodies doesn't mean that they protect. And just because you have antibodies today doesn't mean that three months from now you'll still have them or that they'll be protected. 
Clearly, if that's the case with natural infection, there's going to be a big challenge for the vaccine to outperform nature, right? What we're expecting of a vaccine is to generate immune response that's robust. And the furthest vaccine trial information that we have so far is 56 days from the Oxford-AstraZeneca trial. We don't have very much longevity data because the trials are all happening at the moment. Right? So we, don't, we haven't, haven't had enough time. It feels like Imagine it's been it's, years, but it yeah, has been that long. Know, exactly, <laughs> that's true. It's been the longest 10 years since January. But, um, but you know, if we have a, a really effective vaccine and it's fantastic, but it runs out after four months, six months, that's really difficult because how are you going to deploy that at mass, you know, on mass for the whole world? You're talking about billions of doses uh-huh. every six months. I mean, it's not feasible. So they, these are really important questions we still don't know. Okay. And we'll hopefully know them as time goes on. So then, okay, so switching gears then, the process of developing a vaccine, what are the steps in the process? So let's say we'll start from the beginning. I'm sure somebody in a lab figures out the the genetic makeup, the chemical makeup of the virus, and then they say, okay, now we can make something that attacks that. And they create a, a, a vaccine. Then what do they do? How do they test it? Yeah, so, I mean, this, is, this has been one of the fastest uh, vaccine development processes that we've ever had before. The Chinese um, released the genetic code of the virus, you know, within weeks of it first being recognized. Immediately, uh, vaccine work was commenced. In fact, vaccine work was already commencing on this long before, because if you might remember, there was the SARS event that occurred in in 2003, and then there was the MERS, Middle East and Respiratory Virus, which was also coronavirus, in 2012. And so vaccines were in development already for those uh, viruses as well, except that that process was stopped because the the virus transmission was able to be curtailed and stopped by just public health measures. It didn't become a pandemic. It threatened to, but it didn't. So further work on the vaccine wasn't funded. But the platforms were originally developed then. They were obviously kick-started now with a new pandemic. And um, initially there was some, as you say, some basic laboratory work, some stereochemistry and other things to get the structure of the molecule that you want to get with the vaccine. Then we went with, with vaccine platforms, quite a range of them, some new, some old, in order to understand how best to, to have a vaccine. Then there were animal studies. Uh, and then once we showed that in animal studies the vaccines were well tolerated by the animals and were uh, mounted an immune response, then it's critical to move to humans because just because an animal does it doesn't mean that a human being will do it. So there were phase one studies and phase two studies. Phase one and two studies look for safety in a small number of people and they look for an immune response. Uh, and the the results of those trials were good. They were very you know, positive and optimistic, but they didn't prove that the vaccines reduced disease. They can only come from so-called phase three studies. Now, phase three studies might be 10,000 people, usually 12,000, 15,000. These studies are in the order now of about 30 to 40,000. Partly that's because we want to demonstrate safety in, in more numbers. Partly it's because we want to have a, more confidence around the efficacy estimates. Partly it's because we want to look at subgroups specifically. We want to look at how well it works in the elderly or how well it works in um, in, in African-American groups or others that we know are at higher risk. So. That's why we're having each of these trials is about thirty to 40,000 people. So at the end of it, we'll probably have about 100 to 150,000 people. Now, that, that's pretty good safety data, but it's clearly not going to tell us things that are extremely rare. If something happens one in 100,000 and the total people in the trial were 150,000, let's say half of them got placebo, so 75,000 got vaccine. So it's not going to tell me necessarily of something that happens one in 100,000. 
So we're really going to have to rely on post-vaccine, uh, post-licensure uh, trial studies of safety that go on beyond phase three. And, and very rarely vaccines have had to be withdrawn in those circumstances. But that's pretty rare. But it can happen. Uh, so, the, you know, community needs to be aware of that. Okay, so then, um, so all these steps, so they're studying these in hundreds of thousands of people to make sure they're safe. Uh, and then they're studying them in people afterwards for probably, I'm guessing, several years. Now, how is this process aside? I mean, it sounds a little scary, but, you know, how is this process going to be able to be kept safe when it's so, you know, when it's so fast? It seems like warp speed is a bit too fast. Maybe unless you're on Star Trek, it's okay. But like with the vaccine, how do we know? What about warp speed or the speed is going to be sure that it's safe, even though it's fast at the same time? So the recruitment of um, the, the recruitment of people to the trial and the actual phases of the trial are not sped up. They're, you you recruit people to the trial. Um, if you've got enough money, you can recruit a large number quickly. It doesn't, you know, if I recruit the same number of people over two months or over six months, um, you know, I can move on faster. If I've got more money, I've got more teams. I've got more recruiters, then I can recruit more people more quickly. Usually vaccine trials take a very long time because of their limited resources. You know, I've got a team of 10 people and they just need to recruit all the time and there's a limit to how much they can do. But if I've got 100 people, I've got 10 teams, and I, if I go to places where the, where the disease is very prevalent, you know, it's common, it's a hot spot, whatever, and I recruit lots of people and I see events occurring quickly, then I can get a trial done quickly. It's not that the... The speed of the trial isn't what the issue, it's the size of the trial that's the issue. So if I have a disease that's rare and it takes ages, I see a few of them a year, then the trial for that will take many years because I need many events. So the warp speed isn't really got to do with making anything shorter. The process of, the process, um, a couple of things are made shorter. Um, the, the, the steps are somewhat overlapped. We don't, we don't do a large phase, we don't do a phase one then sit back and review the data and wait for the public holidays and not look at it over the weekend and then finally give approval to phase two. And it, that all happens very slowly, 10, 15 years usually, in a normal development of a vaccine. Now people are working very long hours, very hard. There's no weekends in a pandemic, blah, blah, blah. And, and the licensure bodies are right from the beginning involved in the study design. It's not that there's a company that invests in shareholder money and does this and then comes afterwards to the regulator and the regulator says, go back to the drawing board because it's too much to lose them this time. So the regulators already from the outset have said, we want the trials to look like this. And then the companies do that, then they don't have to be sent back to the drawing board, hopefully. So that's the, there are, there are a lot, there's lots of dead space and time and exit, you know, that can be shortened to make things faster. But the trials are still going to be the same. So in fact, they're bigger than usual, these trials. They're about double the size of normal vaccine trials. Yeah. So in many ways, this vaccine will probably be more scrutinized and safer, potentially. I mean, when, when, when we say give the vaccine, it, it, there's been a lot more behind that than usual, right? There's a lot more scrutiny than usual, maybe, because not only do you have the universities and the companies and the government, but you have every single news outlet in the world and everybody is, is, is looking on this like, like it's, it's so important. So it would be great if that was true. Okay. <laughs> um, there's certainly a lot of public scrutiny and media scrutiny. That's true, and that's good because, as you say, I think it pushes to keep to keep people honest. You know, if they know they're being watched, and that's good. And that's what the that's the role of the media, and that's the role of the public to advocate for that. Um, there are things that are new here. We're using new platforms, uh, new vaccine platforms that 
Some of them have only been recently licensed uh, for Ebola, for example, the Ebola virus. There is now a vaccine, which is really great because you wouldn't want a pandemic of Ebola virus. Um, so there is a vaccine, and you know, uh, but that's the, the for the adenovirus vectored vaccines that, that people may have heard of, the AstraZeneca one, the Janssen one, the, the, the Chinese one, the Russian one. They're all based on that platform. There's only ever been a license, and that was only in July of this year, to the Ebola virus vaccine. So, um, you know, that's new. All of the RNA vaccines, which is Pfizer and Moderna, that's never been licensed. So, you know, we don't have a lot of experience with these vaccines. That's, that's a fact. I mean, this, this, this pandemic, like the Second World War, apart from all the devastation and terrible things, and, of course, what we experience as a people, but as a result, we have antibiotics. As a result, we have nylon. As a result, we have all these technologies that occur in, in a time of war. There will be new technologies in vaccinology that arise out of this event, and some of them might be excellent going into the future. They might give us a whole new armamentarium, but we have less experience with them. The BCG vaccine, which has been in use since 1912 and has been given to billions and billions of doses, in billions of that's doses. That's for tuberculosis. Know, that, that's for tuberculosis, yeah, which is not routinely given in the U.S. anymore. Um, but is given around the world. Um, you know, we know that that's safe. We've got years and years and billions of doses of experience. We know what it does. We know the harms that it can cause also, and we know how to quantify them. We don't yet have that experience with these new vaccines. So that's why I'm emphasizing so much the importance of ongoing safety surveillance post-licensure, both short-term and long-term. Um, the clinical trials will achieve licensure after their initial results, but they will continue at least for two years. We are talking about achieving licensure potentially at least before the end of this year, maybe early next year for some of them. But that's not the end of the phase threes. They're going to continue out to at least two years. And then beyond that, there will be phase fours that are very, very important, particularly what's called pharmacovigilance or, or safety monitoring long term. And, you know, there have been cases I alluded to before. There have been cases where vaccines have been withdrawn uh, because of safety concerns, uh, sometimes uh, ethically dubiously so. You know, maybe... They might be causing harm, but they might be their benefit might very much outweigh the harm. And so, but the population deserves and needs to know. And before I give this vaccine to my mother or to my children or or to my wife or whatever, I want to know that it's safe too, just like you want to know and everybody wants to know. So it's a question of accumulating safety information, having the systems in place to monitor safety even after licensure. Because you're not going to know rare events until you start to give the vaccine widely. That's the irony of it. So what you want to know is as robust safety data as you can. If there's any signal, then you need to be cautious. But if the signals are good, you go ahead, you go ahead. You, but you monitor the whole time. That's, that's how things progress. Yeah. So there's a lot of people out there. So there's a very small population of people who don't do vaccines for a variety of reasons. And I don't think anything you or I say is going to change their minds. Then there's a, a group of people who are sort of nervous and on the fence. Yeah. And so what would you say to those folks to, to reassure them that when, I mean, we're talking about when the, when the vaccine comes out and it's approved and it's licensed and everybody says it's safe, what would you tell a parent that came to you and said, I'm really nervous about this vaccine. It seems like it's all happening so fast. Is it safe? What would you tell them? So look, I'm nervous and on the fence as well. No, because I haven't seen the results of the phase three studies. They're not out yet. Right? And so I think we are all in that position. I think it's super important, you know, if I especially so when it comes to vaccine safety, it's our responsibility as vaccine scientists to 
demonstrate with defini as defin be as definitive as we can be, given all of the uncertainties that are inherent to science, to be as definitive as we can be that this is safe. I don't want to tell people just hashtag vaccine safe or well, trust me, I'm a doctor, vaccines are safe. I'm not trying to be propagandist about it. I'm trying to be very rigorous because I'm going to be using that vaccine on my family, just like I'll be expecting other people to. And I want, I want that vaccine to be safe. You know, if, if you do a trial of, let's say, cancer treatments or something like that, okay, so people have a disease and you're looking for a cure, so people are willing to take risks because they're going to benefit. Vaccines have a much higher safety standard. You're giving them to healthy people. You're giving them to everybody. You're giving them for the, you know, with, with a view to influencing things in the long term. So the requirements are demonstrated, and you're giving them against a potential future risk, not against a disease with a known outcome. So the, the ethical requirement, the scientific requirement, the sociological requirement to, to demonstrate safety in vaccines is supreme. It's really important. And not just that. If I use a vaccine for COVID that's unsafe or that's less than safe, less than reasonably safe, because it's a pandemic and I, we've got to act, we've got to do something, then the damage I'll do to vaccine trust and to vaccine uh, acceptance will, will be well beyond COVID. I can damage all vaccine uptake. And we saw that in the Philippines after there was a trial of the Dengvaxi vaccine, which was a vaccine against dengue, which is a tropical disease, and it caused the death of many kids, and it was withdrawn. And, um, and as a result of that, all vaccine uptake in the Philippines dropped precipitously. And then we had a run of measles, and lots of measles deaths, and more measles deaths than occurred from the dengue vaccine deaths. So in other words, the, the harm that can be done from an unsafe vaccine is huge, and the harm that can be done from vaccine hesitancy is huge. And so, you know, I'm standing right there with everybody who's hesitant about this vaccine because we haven't seen enough safety data yet, but we will, and we'll need to continue to monitor it, and everything needs to be done openly, transparently, and fully, with, you know, inclusively, under the scrutiny of the public eye and the media in order to show that things are safe. And if they're not, then people need to also be told that and be prepared for that. So these are really important things. We, as I said before, we're using new vaccine platforms. They're not as tried and tested as the old ones. So there's lots that we're still learning. And the pathogen is new. We've not had this pathogen before. We don't know what this pathogen does beyond the seven months that we've seen it. Right? So these are really important questions, and this is a good test of how well the scientific community can communicate with the general public and re-establish some of the eroded trust that's occurred. It's also challenging, I think, at the moment for the scientific community because people, you know, have experienced the fact that, that uh, you know, suggestions have changed about, you know, public guidelines have changed about masks or other things. And, and the scientific community openly saying, we don't know everything there is to know about this virus. The things that we don't know are infinitely always greater than the things that we do know. We only know a little bit. We know much more than we knew six months ago, and the amount of science that we've learned about this virus is astronomically greater than it was, but astronomically still tiny in terms of the universe of what there is to know. Right? So I think that a dose of humility and a dose of listening to the public, not brushing aside people with vaccine concerns, you know, trusting people's gut feeling about things is important. Um, and, and we need to pay attention to that, and we need to be answerable to that, and we need to be accountable to the public, uh, and that's really important, and that's the only way to demonstrate, to get regain trust, is to be honest and to be safe, and not to just say things are safe when they're not. So that's really important. The second thing I just want a small detail is, mostly when people talk about vaccine hesitancy, they talk about, like the example you gave, parents coming in, 
talking about this vaccine for their kids. This is likely not going to be a pediatric vaccine. In the first instance, this is likely to be an adult vaccine for older adults um, and for, um, for older adults and for uh, people at higher risk. And that's an important issue in terms of vaccine delivery because we don't really have the mechanisms to reach adults with vaccines. We have that for children, but we haven't got, got that established for older adults, for people at high risk, people with hypertension, people who are obese. There's no register of obese people, nor should there be. But, you know, that's the sort of thing you need, especially if you need to give a second dose and so on. So these are complex issues. Plus, we have communities that are even more distrustful of government for good reason uh, in the current environment, certainly in the United States. And that also means vaccine hesitancy is high and uptake is likely to be low. All of those things will also affect transmission. If you know, a vaccine doesn't work, if you don't take it. Uh, so there's a lot of really smart people, it sounds like, that are really taking this very seriously. But when it gets through, I mean, it's jumping through every hoop that you can imagine. And it's going to get to a point where the FDA or the CDC or the world, whatever organizations say it's ready. And when that comes out, are you going to be ready to, to roll up your sleeve or and get your, your shot, because I guess you and me are, I'm, I'm a frontline health worker, I'm probably in the first wave to get this vaccine. Uh, are you going to take this vaccine? Assuming like all the things you said, all those concerns are, le are legitimate. And I'm, I'm so relieved to know that so many people, that this is not just some sort of big corporate machine that's trying to make a profit, that there are really, really smart people who are really concerned and taking this very seriously. But once it gets through that ringer, and the FDA says, it's a go, are you going to roll up your sleeve? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm probably not going to be the first in line. My mother will be first in line and others will be first in line. I'll certainly give it to them and I'll give it to myself when it's my turn. Um, so, you know, I'm more than happy to. Um, bearing in mind that I will be less confident about the safety of this vaccine than of others because quantitatively we will know less. You know, and I understand that people in the community will say, well, I'll wait once there's a, several million people have received this vaccine, then I'll receive it. And I don't think that that's an entirely unreasonable position to, for people to take, right? Because the more people take it, the more we learn. And, uh, but nevertheless, one also has to weigh up the risks and benefits. If something happens, one in 150,000 or one in 200,000 risk, right? And let's say we can be fairly reassuring at those kinds of levels, give or take. I'm, you know, I'm not being precise on my numbers here. Um, if I have a high risk of COVID occurring, and if COVID is in the community, and COVID is spreading in the community, and I've got, you know, my, my risk is still relatively small in absolute terms, but it's 100 times more than my 15-year-old, mm -hmm. right? and it goes up and up, then not taking a vaccine also carries a risk, okay? So I think it's always, you know, we have to make decisions that are wise in the face of uncertainty, and we have to balance risk. There is no risk-free option here. A vaccine will never be free of risk, and not taking a vaccine will certainly not be free of risk, as we're all experiencing now. Right. So it's about minimizing the balance of harms. It's not about doing the thing that's 100% safe. Life is not 100% safe. You know, we, the expectation that the vaccines are perfectly safe is, is false. Vaccines are harmful, but very rarely. Yeah. And COVID is harmful, reasonably rarely for certain age groups, commonly for other age groups. So it's about weighing up the balance of risk. It's the least worst option. It's not about making the perfect decision. It's about making the wise decision. So there are risks of, of taking the vaccine, but there are risks of not getting the vaccine. And Correct. ideally, so you're going to take the vaccine if the risks of 
taking the vaccine are less than the risks of not getting the vaccine. Correct. It sounds pretty simple, right? <laughs> Just do the <laughs> well, math. Well, I, I think the community is right to demand that we tell them what the risks are. Sure. Okay. That's called healthy well, skepticism, right? That's healthy skepticism, right? Okay. And, and we have, there's, there's no, I don't know if anybody still th expects certainty with anything related to this virus. I think that they're, they, they're maybe got some mental health issues because there's nothing that it's delusional, right? There is nothing about this that is certain and it's so stark in the, in the, in the intensity. So it, why would we expect that a vaccine would be any different? But the vaccine is really our, our best hope to get through this in the, in the best possible way. So let me say something about that, okay? I think in the first instance, in the first round of, so remember that, let's say it like this, every year we produce about 300 million vaccines for the world's birth cohort, okay? For children every year. That's 300 million. You know, if we wanna vaccinate people at high risk and people who are health workers and the elderly and whatever, that's already 7 billion, I mean, sorry, 7 billion, 7 billion is the world, right? That, that, that's already 700 million people, you know, and, and you go up and up and up as you, you know, are you including all teachers? Are you including school students? Are you including everybody? 7 billion. These are orders of magnitude more than the fact the world is able to produce vaccine. So, you know, it's going to take time until there's enough doses. In the first instance, there won't be enough doses for everybody. So who are we going to first use and how, who's going to get it first? That's an issue that's currently yeah. under discussion. But regardless, even if there's a vaccine today, you and I are probably not going to get it for a while, and certainly people are not health workers also not going to get it for a long time. And so community transmission is going to continue because transmission can only be prevented when enough people have the vaccine and on the assumption that the vaccine reduces transmission. And it might not. It might reduce disease and not transmission. And so if that's the case, you know, imagine that it works less well in the elderly or that African-Americans take it less often or that other groups, Hasidim, you know, whatever, take it less often, let's say. Right? And, and we all take it, but it doesn't reduce transmission. And they don't take it or they don't get, immuno, they don't get an immune response because they're elderly or whatever. Then paradoxically, disease rates could go up. Right? Because why? I've been vaccinated. What do I need this mask for? Right? And that's wrong. That's the wrong thinking. If we want to use the vaccine wisely, we have to understand that at least in the first year or two years, the vaccine is a supplement to, to, to masks. The vaccine is a supplement to social distancing. The vaccine is going to protect the most vulnerable, but we still are in the midst of a pandemic. And it's only once we have enough of the population vaccinated, and then slowly we can emerge out of this. It's not going to be the day after their vaccine is announced, Anthony Fauci gets on board, and then we can have Sirkhustarakafas, no problem. And it's not going to be like that. There's going to be an announcement, and then it'll be years before we go back to normal, if we go back to normal. Okay? So masks will continue. Distancing will continue even the day after a vaccine even six months after the vaccine, probably even 12 months after the vaccine. And together with vaccination and distancing and masks and hand washing and protecting the elderly and those at risk, we will slowly emerge from this event. Like happened in 1918, the world emerged over two years out of that pandemic. Okay? And we expect everything right now. You want a pizza at 3 a.m., call up, home delivery. Right? That's the culture. And that's not nature. Nature has seasons and times. They're called Zmanvayet. And that's how we're going to emerge out of this. It'll be slowly. Eventually, there'll be enough vaccine for everybody and transmission will hopefully go down. There will be vaccine, but there'll also be people who have in their own sort of innate immunity from their own infections. Plus, at the same time, we'll be better at treating it, which means that maybe with it's not just masks and social distancing. It's the whole chalent, 
maybe we can relax the mask and social distancing if the risk of, of mortality and morbidity goes down. Because yeah, all of those people, people right now, it's going to be two to three years before they can have their, their family for Yuntif. There's going to be, you're, you're, you're going to throw it, you know, forget it. Yeah, so look, I think it's really important. You, know, you, 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 you can't give a glory to the Tibur that the Tibur can't, uh, you know, right. can't be loved by. Yeah? You can't tell people to do things that are so extreme that they just can't do. We're in this for the long haul. That's the issue. We need to do things that the, that the population can tolerate. We need to do things that the population can comply with for the long term. We need to minimize risk. We need to reduce risk. If we clamp down extremely tightly the whole time, it will break through. There will be protests. There will be whatever. There may be times when we have to clamp down. If things are getting out of control and ICU beds are full and we're getting you know, widespread transmission, there are roles and specific uh, reasons and limited periods of time when you really have to do lockdowns. But after that, or, and they may be intermittent lockdowns over some time, but in between, you do have to allow people to breathe, right? But at the same, I mean, euphemistically, I don't mean you can't <laughs> breathe with a mask. But at the same time, people still will have to maintain uh, those things that are tolerable to do over the long term. And then, as you say, slowly the whole chillin comes together. It's a slow cook. And by Shabbos lunch, you can, you know, you can emerge. Hopefully, hopefully it's not a three-day antif, right? Okay. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but then also remember, there's also, we'll know about this antibody question, maybe. We'll know maybe some people have immunity. You'll be able to maybe do an immunity pass. But I don't know who. There could be all kinds of stuff that could change. Yeah. I sure hope we're not uh, on Zoom in two to three years, and I hope we can get kids back in school and all that stuff. I, 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 I'm, I'm hopeful that we can, at, at least through this year, you know, because yeah, of all the other Schools is a whole other big discussion, and, and we can talk about that another time too, if you like. But um, you know, it, it's it's not all antibodies. There may be T right. cell responses and other things that may be herd protection. You know, might depend on other things. But, but you know, I think we are very far from herd immunity. Very, very far. I don't think it's a realistic expectation anywhere in the near term. Not even after a vaccine. And so I think that things will continue. We will emerge from this slowly, and we need so to. Remember that vaccines don't come in the place of masks. Okay, so you're going to get two doctors here that will tell you that if that doesn't convince you that this is all Mina Shemayim and that we need as much Siyat HaShemayim that we can get, I don't know what will. So everybody's got a yeah, doctor yeah, at this I, point. I, I, I call me the Shemayim. <laughs> yeah, thank God, God because just... relying on us, this doesn't seem to be working so well. Let's... <laughs> Exactly. Our job out of all of this is to increase our U.S. domain, right? Everything okay. else is a combination. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Barzev. And okay, I, hope you're, I hope you're wrong, and I hope it takes less, and there's a miracle. But, um, but we definitely appreciate your being a part of this community. And, and thank God there's people like you working. Like I said, there's no weekends in the pandemic, you said, except for maybe Shabbos but, uh, for you. But all the, everybody else can work the weekends. And, uh, and that you guys are working so hard to keep us safe and get us through this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.